we uh, elect choose our leaders. So let's pay careful attention to the reading of God's word, first from Acts 6, verses 1 through 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose that the he- against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Acts 14.23 And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 2 John 10-11 If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open this text to us this morning, that we would understand it, and that we would see your grace in Christ more clearly through understanding these texts. In Jesus' name, amen. It's September 24th, 367 A.D., A full moon shines down on the Egyptian city of Alexandria, but it's still dark enough that nobody can fully make out the figure of a man returning secretly to the city he's been absent from for several years. That man's name is Lucius, and he's there to try his hand at ousting the bishop Athanasius to be seated in his place. You see, Lucius had been appointed as bishop some years previously by Athanasius, theological enemies. These were the Arians who taught that the Son was not one God with the Father. The new Roman emperor, Valens, was friendly to their cause and had attempted to send Athanasius away into yet another exile. This would have been his fifth. That's why Lucius is here, sneaking into the city, to perform an ecclesiastical coup. At first, he's successful for about a day or so in keeping his presence under wraps. But as he holds up in his mother's house, slowly rumors begin to spread through the city, and slowly a crowd begins to gather outside the house. As time goes on, the crowd begins to become hostile. Meanwhile, Trajanus and Tatianus, the leaders of the city, have heard that Lucius has arrived, and they're not very happy about the prospect of yet more religious conflict in the city. Sometimes it's the pagans rioting, sometimes it's the Christians, but it's always their problem. So they send some officials to go to the house and kindly tell Lucius to please get out of the city. 
But by the time the officials arrive, they find a full-scale riot has developed outside the house, and they're afraid that if they attempt to extract Lucius, he'll be murdered by the crowd. They return to Trajanus and Tatianus to report on the situation, and the two leaders gather a detachment of soldiers to escort him from the house. As Lucius is led away, the crowd follows, hurling insults the whole way. The next day, Lucius is placed in the custody of a detachment of soldiers with strict instructions to escort him out of Egypt. His attempts to take over the bishopric of Alexandria for the Arian cause has been foiled, at least for now. He'll be back. Why do I tell this story one week before our congregation votes for a new pastor? It's because I want you to notice the role of the people in this story. Not deacons or elders or priests or bishops or emperors, but regular people in choosing who is going to be their leader. And actually, if you look at the story of Athanasius and the whole controversy over the Arian teaching, it's actually really amazing how often the people of Alexandria managed to to foil the desires of emperors who would just rather have one unified Arian teaching in their empire. Just because you're emperor doesn't mean you always get your way. Now, it's true here that the tactics are disorderly. Um, And in the next century, when the bishop Theophilus passes a canon reaffirming the necessity of the consent of the people in the election of a bishop, he also adds that when the candidate is examined for orthodoxy, the bishop in charge should charge the people that there be no running up and down in the middle of the church or service. So I'm hopeful that our congregational meeting will be a little more orderly than this riot in Alexandria. I'm not advocating riots. Still, it attests to the involvement of the people in the process of choosing a bishop in 4th and 5th century Alexandria. And despite the excesses, it may be preferable to the alternatives. Longtime members of Wallace may be aware that we changed denominations in 1981, and they could probably tell you better than me, but my understanding is that had to do with our old denomination ordaining a man who, when asked the question in his examination, do you believe Jesus is God, responded, no, God is God. The failure of leaders of the denomination to take any action in that case is clear, and we could tell a story about corruption in seminaries, leading to them training ministers who, whatever their own beliefs might be, weren't willing to stand up for central doctrines of the Christian faith. We could tell that story. But what I didn't realize until I refreshed my knowledge this week uh, on the, the matter is that when he was voted on in his congregation, he received a unanimous vote for his call. Unanimous. Not one person voted in opposition. I kind of have to wonder if the people of Alexandria would have voted the same way. And it's a good reminder that right teaching in the church is a group project. It's not just up to the leaders of the church. The people of the church have a vital role to play as well, every single one of you. While heretical ministers are certainly a big danger to the church, nothing is more dangerous, I think, than the doctrinal apathy of the people. So, um, as David mentioned, he suggests that I preach a sermon today to prepare us for exercising that duty of voting next week. And it's timely, not just because of our vote 
on Ryan, but also because this is the time for elder and deacon nominations. In a Presbyterian church, uh, the nominations, the people who get put forward for leadership are also come from the congregation and then are voted on by the congregation. At no point do the elders of the presbytery initiate the process and say, we think this person should be in charge. It always comes from the congregation. It's a season that calls us all to engage ourselves in the process of who our leaders are going to be. So for my sermon today, we're going to see three points. First, why do we have the people choose the leaders? Not every Christian denomination has done this, uh, and not every point in church history have the people have that ability. So where in the Bible does that come from? That's, that's what I'm going to try to cover in my first point. Uh, second point, um, how should we think about our role in that choice? As we, we all go into that vote next week, what, 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 what are some biblical guidelines for thinking about it? And then third, what does all this have to do with Jesus? And if you're a visitor here today, and uh, maybe you're exploring Christianity a bit more, I don't want you to totally check out just because we're talking about the details of how to run the church. Our attempts to live out how to work together as a church is an attempt to live out the reality of the fact that Jesus is king. As our confession today said, Jesus visibly reigns in his church through officers and laws. All the discussion and debate and compromise that goes on the church is, is our attempt to live out this freedom Christ has given us in a way that loves each other well as brothers and sisters in Jesus. So that's, that's where we're going to end today. Spoiler alert. Okay, so point number one, where does this idea that you should vote for your church leaders come from? Let me start with one argument, one common argument I don't think works. Um, sometimes you hear that the verb appointed in Acts 14.23, when it says that uh, Paul and Barnabas there appointed elders in every church, um, sometimes people say that that word appointed actually means um, to elect, to elect by a show of hands. Actually, John Calvin argued this, he's no slouch, um, and it's true that it can refer to, the Greek word can refer to elections in some classical Greek texts, um, but in later Greek, it more usually seems to just mean to appoint. Josephus, who was a Jewish author, author writing around the time that Paul was writing, uh, around the time Acts was written, by Luke rather, um, he uses the verb to describe God choosing David, which wasn't an election. And even when this verb does describe an election, it's always the subjects of the verb who are doing the voting. In other words, it doesn't mean to appoint somebody by having somebody else vote, um, but to appoint somebody by voting yourselves. So if it's an election in this text, then Paul and Barnabas are the only ones voting. So with all respect to our beloved Calvin, I don't think we can get an argument for the vote of the people just from this verb. So if that's not a good argument, then where in the Bible do we get this idea from? Well, I think what we need to do is look closely at the events in Acts 6. Verse 2 tells us that uh, the apostles summoned the full number of the disciples, all, all the Christians, and then they tell them to pick out seven men from among themselves, choosing men with a good reputation, wisdom, and full of the Spirit. Then, once the people have selected these men, 
they stand them before the apostles, and the apostles appoint and lay their hands upon them and ordain them. And that surely, that last step is surely not a formality. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22 to be sure not to lay hands on anybody hastily. Um, so, we can assume that the apostles would have had veto power over this appointment if they had been inappropriate. So, what we have is basically a two-step process. The people choose their leaders, and then the apostles appoint them. Now, we don't have apostles today. We believe that office has ceased. Um, But if we look a little bit more through the New Testament, well, first of all, we can see Barnabas, Titus, and Timothy also exercising this role of appointing leaders, and, and they don't seem to be apostles. Also, in Acts 15, we can notice how the apostles and the elders sit together to decide uh, a matter of, of church dispute about doctrine and practice. And, and then in 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul says that Timothy was ordained by the council of elders. So, when we, we put that all together, we can infer that the elders together with the apostles um, hold this responsibility uh, for examining, approving, and ordaining candidates. Um, and in Presbyterianism, it's our elders who do that. For deacons and ruling elders, that's done by the elders in a local congregation, what we call our, our session. Um, and then for pastors, which are also a kind of elder, um, we call them a teaching elder, it's all of the elders in our region, in our presbytery, who have uh, a wider, uh, wider resources for examining pastors. They're, they're the ones who come and examine them. But before any of that examining or ordaining gets rolling, we start by following the order of Acts 6. It's the congregation as a whole who selects candidates for ordination to office. Notice that in Acts 6, the apostles don't give any instructions for how the people are to select their leaders. Just a short list of qualifications, that's it. And that means that there's a lot of room left to the church to figure out exactly how this process is supposed to work using human reason and common sense, all in submission to principles of biblical wisdom, always subject to the Presbyterian's favorite rule from 1 Corinthians 14.40, that we should do all things decently and in order. So this process, it can kind of look different in in different times and and places. Um, It does seem likely to me, though, that the decision-making in the early church probably did involve taking a vote. That's not anachronistic, There are examples of Jewish communities using voting as a way to solve problems um, at the time. So, and certainly some kind of voting process makes a lot of sense for us today as well. So, that's the basic argument for having the people choose their leaders. That's where it comes from in the Bible. Um, But perhaps someone might object, well, Acts 16 isn't about pastors, it's about deacons, right? (laughs) Um, And that's true. I think that question invites us a little more to ask about what the principle of this choosing is, though. Um, What precisely is the job that the apostles give to the people? Well, they're supposed to look for three categories, good reputation, full of the Spirit, and wisdom. And, And that sounds like the same sorts of qualities you'd want in an elder and a pastor, doesn't it? Uh, it's, I think it's a short version of what Paul expands in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. Um, so, if the, congreg- if the people are able to choose somebody with those qualifications for the deacon, why not any other officer? We should see this as applying to officers broadly. There's actually another reason, too, and, and it's, a, it's a detail of the text, but we have to look at the names, uh, the names of the deacons who are chosen. 
So the problem at the start is we have this group called the Hellenists, and the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews, that they're Jewish, but they speak Greek, as opposed to Aramaic or Hebrew, as most of the, the, the Jewish people who lived in uh, Judea or Galilee would have spoken. Um, and a problem has arisen around this linguistic cultural um, barrier that the widows are not being taken care of the same way as Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking widows are. Kind of natural things that can arise from not having the same kinds of community connections. That's, that's the situation that sets this into motion. Well, notice if you look at the names of the people who are chosen, we got Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus. These are all very Greek names. You can go through your Old Testament. You won't, you won't find them. Um, and in fact, Nicolaus is a proselyte, which means that he was actually a Gentile who converted to Judaism. So they actually end up selecting deacons who are from the community um, that has experienced the need. They have the relevant cultural and linguistic knowledge to be able to minister to these people. Um, so while godliness and wisdom are the most important qualifications here, and I don't want to lose sight of that or minimize that at all, um, these men also have other qualifications, that there are aspects of their history and background that enable them to serve this particular group of people well. Once, once you realize that, it suddenly makes a lot more sense why the people would have such an active role in choosing their leaders. Um, they are the best judges of who is a credified and credible and qualified leader in their particular context. Whereas the apostles, who God has gifted with teaching the Word and leading the church, have a supervisory role because they're hopefully the best judges in, in doctrinal and ethical matters. So it's a team project of the people and the apostles to choose these leaders. Um, okay, so if the apostolic pattern in Acts 6 is to... to have the people vote for the leaders, then what do we do with passages like Acts 14.23 here, where Paul and Barnabas just seem to appoint the elders themselves, or in Titus 1, where Paul tells Titus, you go appoint elders? Um, well, there's a couple different possibilities. One is that maybe because this is a missionary context, um, they are given a sort of ability, you know, since they're start setting up these baby churches, they're given an exceptional power to just appoint elders. But I think it's also possible that these passages just kind of assume, without stating it, that there's a, a selection by the people that takes place. Um, it certainly feels like Acts 6 gives us the full blow-by-blow -blow process, whereas these passages are less oriented on the process. So if Acts 6 is the main basis for this practice of having the people select their leaders, there's also one other important New Testament text in 2 John 10 through 11, it says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I mentioned earlier that Paul tells Timothy to be careful whom he lays hands on, lest he have fellowship with their sins. There's this warning given to the elders, indeed, in examining a candidate, they should do it very carefully before ordaining them. But then if you turn over to 2 John, our passage here we find John giving a warning, but to all Christians, don't receive false teachers, lest they have fellowship with, thus you have fellowship with their evil works. In both cases, the concern is by receiving uh, the teacher, you'll have fellowship. And Presbyterians have argued that what this means in this passage is that it's not just the leaders of the church who have a duty 
uh, to fulfill in leaders being selected, but also the people. The people have, every single Christian has a duty not to receive false teachers, and how can Christians exercise that if they have no say if who is put in leadership over them? So this passage gives us a biblical example that suggests that the whole congregation should get a veto on the leaders at least. Okay, I know that's a lot. We have to like connect some dots, right? Um, but that's the biblical basis for it. Let me give you a little more context about the history since then. If this was the practice in the early church, why did it disappear? Well, I could tell you a long story, but I'll be brief. There's actually evidence that regular Christians did get to vote for their priests and even bishops in some cases in the ancient church. Um, but elsewhere, this right was restricted to the leaders. Um, the people didn't get to choose them, but that was the priest's job, but they at least got a veto. Um, the Synod of Laodicea in the 4th century explicitly banned the multitude voting for priests, and that probably means that somebody was doing it, right? Um, and in that Edict of Theophilus I mentioned earlier, he had the same procedure. And as this time went on and the church became more politically important, then even the people started to lose the right to veto. You know, once it became important to people in the government who was being a pastor somewhere, that was when the people's right to vote for their leaders was most in danger. But it was the Reformation with theologians like John Calvin and John Knox who restored the right of the people to elect their leaders. Knox, in his first book of Discipline, says, it appertains to the people, to every several congregation, to elect their minister. For altogether this is to be avoided, that any man be violently intruded or thrust in upon any congregation. But this liberty with all care must be reserved to every several kirk, that's the Scottish word for church, to have their votes and suffrages and election of their ministers. And so that's actually a more complicated story. This didn't always go well in Scotland. The government tended not to like that idea too much. But at least in America, Presbyterians had been free to follow Knox and Calvin's vision. And actually, my girlfriend Emily tells me that in the Massachusetts Constitution of uh, 1790, it's quite clear that the government is not allowed to prevent individual churches from voting for their pastors. So, the congregation chooses leaders, the elders approve them, and nobody can be ordained without the agreement of both parties. Um, by the way, congregations also approve the salary the minister gets paid, and that's something else we'll be doing next Sunday. That will be presented, a worked-out uh, package uh, for Ryan, but it has to be approved by you all. That's something else we'll be thinking about. Of course, there's a lot of room for diversity in, in, in the details of the process over the years. Um, back in the days before widespread travel and relocation, you know, when you were, your community was very limited, you could kind of imagine just doing this all at a congregational meeting. You'd be like, well, um, we've either got to pick one of this list of candidates for the ministry, like in our regional area, or we have to try to poach a pastor from another church. There were some rules to prevent that from getting out of hand. Um, alternatively, a presbytery might assign a, a, a licensed candidate to preach for a year on a trial basis, then a congregation would vote. Um, but through the 19th and into the early 20th century, more and more churches began to use a pastoral search committee. So that would be a committee appointed from the congregation who would do most of the work in finding a pastor. I did a little historical research this week to find out why that's the case. It, it turns out that it was kind of inefficient for a congregation as a whole to do all the work of a pastoral search. A committee could devote a lot more time and care to the process. Although maybe it would have been fun to have like a congregational meeting every week 
um, you know, for the last year or so. I don't know if you would have enjoyed that. Maybe we would have ended up with only 14 people attending. Also, um, pastoral candidates, the, the pastors who were applying, seem to have, enjo- have appreciated some details of the process being kept confidential, at least early on in the process. Um, and by the way, another detail, some people have asked me, both here and just generally when I mentioned being on a pastoral search committee, like, why doesn't the committee, like, propose two or more names, and then we can, have, we can choose, what, the congregation can choose this one? Turns out that committees actually have done this. At least in the early 20th century, there are committees still doing this. Um, Sometimes they submit two or even three or four names. But I actually found multiple sources in my research reporting that this practice tended to result in different factions forming in the congregations, you can imagine. Uh, and, And sometimes a complete deadlock and all of the names had to be dropped and they had to start again. I actually found a couple of books from the early 20th century just satirizing this whole thing. I can send you, send you some fun satire about this if, if you want to give me an email. Um, on top of that, the pastors didn't seem to appreciate traveling all that way while being one of a panel of candidates, um, only one of whom would claim the position. Um, and I, I do think if we try to do this again today, probably um, the pastors, the pastoral candidates would mostly just be offended and refuse to come until they were the final person. Um, in any case, around about 1940, pastoral search committees had become so ingrained in tradition that the old Presbyterian Church in the United States wrote the practice into their Book of Church Order, and we've done the same way, done it the same way ever since. So, with these sorts of tr- church traditions, I know it's important to remember that they're not biblically mandated. We could change them. In fact, we change our Book of Church Order as a denomination all the time. Uh, It's simply based in our best human reason and wisdom in submission to biblical principles. You can disagree with this process without necessarily being unbiblical. Um, And by the way, if you're listening to this and you have questions, you want more details, I love these things, like send them to me. (laughs) If you're curious about what's the reason behind some of these details, like like, let me know. I always love to talk about this stuff. But if we are thinking about how to improve the process, we do have to reckon with the fact that these traditions often represent hundreds of years of trial and error in trying to do things decently and in order, so it's wise to have some respect for the process. Anyway, that's the reason why we do these things. There's some, I, I did some more stuff on this in my Doctrine of the Church class, which is on, on YouTube, the section on officers and ordination, so if, if, if this is really exciting to you, you can go look at this. Otherwise, never mind. Um, Thanks for sticking with me through that first point. That's the grounding. That's why we do things the way we do them. Now on to our second point, a practical. Given this biblical basis, how should you as a member of, a congrega- of the congregation think about your vote next Sunday? Well, first of all, we have what our, what our second John passage tells us. Don't receive a false teacher. Now, obviously, this applies in the more extreme case. I can assure you that as a committee, we did our level best to eliminate the false teachers very early in the process. Um, Nevertheless, it's an important duty for every Christian. Um, And you should satisfy your consciences on this part. Uh, Our confessional standards are designed to help us with this. So Ryan has signed off on the Westminster Confession and catechisms, um, except with four exceptions. And part of what that helps us do is that Ryan is making a commitment about what he believes, and that's accountability to his presbytery, but also to you who are voting on him. Um, And hopefully it helps you all make an informed decision. 
Beyond that, Ryan's sermons are online at the Fort Worth Church. It might not be a bad idea to listen to one or two this week um, as you're thinking about your decision. Obviously, the search committee wouldn't recommend someone to you that we thought was a false teacher, but satisfy your own conscience. Uh, keeping, the church offer, uh, keeping the church orthodox is a collaborative effort that we are all involved in. And then after we have our vote, presbytery will step in and, do, and themselves do some more thorough examining of Ryan as well. It might also be appropriate to spend some time with passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, um, which list the qualifications. We had Titus 1 in our reading today, um, which lists qualifications for being an, uh, an elder in the church. Above reproach, husband of one wife, children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination, um, not arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught and able to give instruction, sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's a lot to meditate on there, isn't? especially for someone like me who's working on going into the ministry. Um, hopefully you've had a chance to get some feel for Ryan in meeting him. Obviously, it's impossible for us to have omniscience um, but what's just required for us is to do our uh, faithful diligence in, in seeing if Ryan measures up to these standards as best we can tell. But beyond basic orthodoxy and qualification for ministry, Acts 6 suggests that when we vote for our leaders, we're considering whether they'd be a good leader for us in our church context. And this is a much more intangible category. It, it's one which the committee wrestled with. And it's one there, where there might be a lot of disagreement between honest, Bible-believing Christians. Um, and uh, I think a lot of the questions we asked Ryan in the interviews are more in this kind of category, right? Um, what kind of leader is he? Will he be a good fit for us here at Wallace? It calls for some discernment and wisdom on your part. A man may be supremely doctrinally sound, overflowing with godly character, possessing fantastic gifts, but not be the pastor God is calling to a specific congregation. And given all the different kinds of people here at Wallace, we're looking for someone who can be a good pastor to all of them. That's what, we're tr that's what we tried to do as a committee, and, and that's the question to think about. Is this someone who can pastor me? Is this somebody who can pastor us? as a congregation. There's something for you to think about as well as you meditate on this this week. So after we've all thought about it over this week, we're going to come together and we're going to vote. And you know what? It's possible we might not agree on everything. Maybe. We'll, we'll see. And you know what? That's okay. It is. It's okay. Listen, God could have filled this church with a bunch of identical robots who all thought and see, saw things all the same way. I don't know if you noticed, but he didn't do that. He gave each of us different giftings. Every single one of you who is a member of Wallace is an integral part of this church. God has made you different, and he's done that for a reason, and he has a way for you to use your gifts and your difference in a way that is for the common good of this body. That being true, that doesn't mean that our views are never wrong or that they're never sinful, does it? And that means that how we navigate our individual differences next week has the opportunity to either bless and build each other up or to tear down and divide. So let's do some work on our hearts this week as we prepare. 
Let's work on approaching these interactions as people who put others first, who hold our own wisdom with an attitude of humility, and let's respect each other's consciences. By all means, let's disagree when we need to. The right answer is not necessarily, if you disagree, keeping silent. Not necessarily the right answer. What we should be aiming for is to disagree well, to disagree with each other in love. Let's do it gently and in love. And most importantly, let's marinate this entire process in prayer. You notice that in these passages? Acts 6 and 14, there is prayer, or even prayer and fasting. The the sort of agreement we're looking for here, or even the sort of charitable disagreement that we're aiming for, doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit doing a work in our hearts. And you know what? Satan also hates it. He's going to be fighting against it. Let's be praying this week. Might even be appropriate to fast individually as your consciences are led. Let's humble ourselves before God and ask Him to bring us together as a church family as we make this decision. Finally, my third point. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Let's take a look at Acts 14.23. How does the verse end? After Paul and Barnabas have appointed elders, the verse tells us that with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. By the way, I take that them, not just to be the leaders, but all the people whom the leaders had been appointed for them. In other words, all the disciples in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. After the apostles have ensured they have good leadership, they point them back to Jesus and specifically faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one in whom they have believed. Why do they do that? Well, you know, I think our Old Testament reading today highlights why. David is right. I like the Old Testament. I love the book of Chronicles, all of those great names. Um, And this is one of my favorite sections. Okay, so one of the big themes for this section is the word help. It keeps occurring over and over. And that's because the task to which God has appointed David is too big for him to do on his own. He needs help. And the passage catalogs all the people from every tribe of Israel who come and help David. And for the chronicler, this decision to help God's king is a big deal. It's not enough to just be born into Israel. You need to choose to participate in what God is doing with his people. And so the chronicler, he lists all of the names. I thought about making Marty read the whole chapter, but uh, I decided, uh, you know, let's keep it simple. Um, but there's a whole list of names in there. You can, you can all go home and read them and, and practice your Hebrew names uh, tonight. Um, but he, the, who, what, what is the significance of all these names? What do we do with all these names? Well, these are all people who made a choice to act on their identity as Israel so that the whole people come together as one people to make David king. And you see in verse 38, everybody who's there at Hebron has one mind, literally one heart. They're absolutely unified in this decision to make David king. And then even the people who can't come in attendance physically, they still show their support for David by sending food, flour and fig cakes and clusters of raisins and wine and oil and oxen and sheep. I don't know if any of you read the Red Bull books, but this is starting to be like one of those food scenes. Um all kinds of great food. It sounds really great, and I find it really inspiring. Isn't this what we want to be, right? This kind 
of unity in every decision our church makes. Like, wouldn't that be great? But there's more to this. There's an episode in the middle of the chapter, and it happens when some men from Benjamin come to pledge their allegiance to David. Now, the thing you need to know about Benjamin is it's the tribe that Saul came from. You know, the king who, before he died, had been trying his best to assassinate David. And Saul's relatives are still fighting a civil war with David. So put yourself in David's shoes. A bunch of Benjaminites come and say, hey, we want to join up. What's your immediate thought? Well, they're going to stab me in the back. This is, you know, <laughs> can I trust these people? And, and David says words to those of that effect. And as David questions them, the Spirit comes down on one of them, this guy named Amasai. And the Spirit clothes him, and he, he prophesies, and he says, We are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse, peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. For your God helps you. Note the significance of the word for there. Everything in this chapter about human help, as inspiring as it is, is grounded upon the cause of God being the one who helps David. That's what's beneath it all. As great as all that unanimity is, Amasai knows that it means nothing if God is not the one who is helping David. He takes all that human help and he looks beneath it, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he sees that it's God's help that really matters. Paul and Barnabas get that too. You know, they've they, they're leaving these little baby churches, all these little baby Christians, who they know are going to be persecuted severely. They mentioned that earlier in the passage. And their hope is not ultimately in the leaders they're appointing for them, as important as that is. Their hope is in Jesus. Because in Jesus, the God who helps us has taken on human flesh. That's why we live entirely by faith in Him, by faith in His death, that our sins might be forgiven, in His resurrection, that we might be brought to life, in His ascension and being seated at the Father's right hand in heaven, from where He sends His Spirit with every gift that this church needs to survive. New Testament teaches that the giftings of our leaders are gifts we receive through the Spirit that Christ gives to us when He ascends into heaven. It's all through Jesus, and I think our confession of faith brings it out wonderfully. He is the one who gives these officers, he gives all the gifting that is needed. Paul and Barnabas know that that is what is sufficient to protect these little baby Christians that they're leaving behind. Jesus is on his throne. He is still ruling his church by his Spirit. And you know, that's great news for sinful people like you and like me. It's not ultimately up to us. It's up to Him to build His church. Brothers and sisters, let's remember that as we leave here and go out into all the challenges and the temptations of the world this week, not just as we think about the vote on Sunday, but all the places where Satan is going to press us this week, all the temptations of the world this week, all of the areas where we're tempted to despair, or we're tempted to unbelief. Jesus is the one who builds this church, not us. He is the one who laid its foundation by walking to the cross, bearing the sin of every 
one of us here who believes in him being scourged and beaten and crucified for that sin so that we could be clothed in his perfect righteousness. We who were outsiders, we who by nature are not part of God's people, now brought in, accepted, brought inside God's people through Christ's death, Christ being made outside and separated from God's people so that we could be brought in. It's true that we are called to do our work for the peace and unity of the church, and we'll have an opportunity for that next week. But let's not get so wrapped up in our own actions and responsibilities that we forget who is on the throne, who truly builds the church. That's where our hope is. Jesus is king, and nothing can stand against his gracious reign in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, the only leader you have ever sent who has obeyed perfectly, who has represented you perfectly, who has loved us perfectly and laid down his life to save us. Lord, I pray that you would impress that reality deep into our hearts, and it would affect the way We interact with everybody this week that we would live as those who have been saved, as those who have been freely forgiven, as those who have been given freedom. I pray that it would engender a deep love for others in us and a commitment to the truth, both love and truth together. And most of all, I pray that you would keep Christ before our eyes this week and at all times. In Jesus' name. Amen.